Uh, what round are we in here? <laughs> we got any idols going home yet? <laughs> well, look in your outline here with me. I want to make a have a pastoral commentary before we actually get into the message this morning. If you will notice in your notes and. Uh, Again, always a plug for notes and note-taking. It'll help you not to have to sit down at the next men's retreat. It will also uh, serve you beyond this moment. Just the reality is there's a lot more that God wants to communicate in our souls individually than what takes place just in this service. So uh, sometimes the most important notes are the ones that aren't on your page yet. The ones you're about to write in there because God made something real to you. And quite honestly, I've sat through meetings sometimes where the note that got on my page wasn't anything about what the guy said. (laughs) Just God decided I needed to hear something and that moment made it come together for me. And so what I wrote down there was God finding the place that he needed to zero in on my life. So note taking is very, very important. Following up on your notes is very important. And what we do in our own private time with God uh, needs to come out of our times. Preaching the word is God setting seed into our life, and we need to reap some harvest from that. So if you look at your notes, though, the very first line says, Personal Idols, Part 5. So this is the fifth week. The men would have had some additional issues that we brought up at the men's retreat. So five weeks of dealing with personal idols and we're not done, probably requires that some form of pastoral moment needs to take place here. Um, Yeah, please, somebody just needs to say uncle already. Uh, Some form of what I would call comfort and coaching. It's it's strange that I think we're probably more familiar with coaches these days. If we're trying to find a biblical paradigm for pastoral ministry, and we we grab the word shepherd, we'd be in the Bible, and we'd be grabbing a word most of us know almost nothing about. But if I were to grab the word coach, you could probably go there with me, right? So a little bit of the job of pastoral ministry, uh, it has comfort in it, it has coaching in it as well. And coaching has a few edges on it that we might need to make sure that we're open and available to. And you watch the guys who have coached their way, whether it's uh, the Saints getting coached into the Super Bowl. There were were points along the way, I'm sure, in the season where the role of the coach was not the most welcomed involvement from the players. You know, this finish strong dynamic. I'm sure there's aspects of, of being on a team and practice and being injured and playing hurt that you just, you just want to be let up on. Give me a break. And coach says, no, 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 we're going to finish strong and turns it up and pushes and achievement happens. And I love the Olympics, and so I will watch some of the Olympics here in the next two weeks. But I am always amazed at the level of devotion of these folks. I mean, I just watched last night, there was a little event with women going the moguls thing, and you know, one of these women, I guess, was kind of favored to do well, and she wiped out, and, and I thought, oh, the hours and hours of training and dedication, and she's out. Just like that, one run, and she is out. <clears throat> well, you know, there's an aspect of the Christian life that, that sometimes we need a little coaching moment. 
And so what I need to tell you after five parts of personal idols is uh, we're not done and we need to go further and deeper than where we are. And I know that's not real welcome news in some ways. In some ways it'd be please move on to the next subject. But as we started, personal idols sit in our lives in such a way as to create dysfunction across the board in our lives. So if we leave them in place, they, they affect every area of our lives. So whatever we'd like to move on to, personal idols staying in place just drag that next topic down. That next teaching comes down. That next move of God comes down. Whatever it is in our lives, to leave these things in place is like leaving a splinter in place in your life. I've had some, I've had some opportunity to, to do some surgery on splinters at home. <clears throat> For some reason, my children absolutely hate shoes. I think we should have been missionaries to China. <laughs> so digging things out of feet and hands is, is a familiar thing. And the question that begins that process usually is this, and you can, you can guess what it would be from a child. Is this going to hurt? <clears throat> and you don't just have tweezers in your hands, you have a needle in your hands. How do you answer that question as a parent? I mean, I gotta be honest. Yes, this is going to hurt, and I need you to hold still anyway, but this is going to hurt. The only thing worse than the pain you're about to experience is if I left it in you, and it got infected, and then something worse needs to happen. Now, the truth is, by the time I actually get access to this splinter, it's already been left in too long, because they've been down this road a few times, so they know a needle is involved and pain is involved. I'd rather just leave the thing in. Well, of course, by the time you get to it, it's got this big red circle around it, and it's sensitive already, and any kind of involvement now is extremely painful. <clears throat> Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that's kind of the way some of our personal idols feel. These are issues in our life that have been there for a while, and we don't like to mess with them, and they don't like to be messed with. And then when we go to mess with them, they're painful. And digging them out is very, very painful to very, very sensitive areas of our lives. But leaving them in is not an alternative. Leaving them alone is not the thing to do. So in, in some regard this morning, I need to start us, in, in, by the time we get to part five here, that, that we're, we're not only trying to look back into our lives and fix past patterns that have been in our lives for a while, but we're also trying to lay hold of new ground to live in. And, and there's a real battle that goes on when we go to do this. And so I want to remind us of something here in case we're, we're kind of feeling like, okay, I've done enough training, I've done enough digging here, I want to, uh, I'm kind of getting wearied with that. You know, the Bible depicts the Christian life as that, that picture of going into the promised land. And when you go into the promised land in the Bible, you go in and you fight for every inch. It is the promise of God. It is there for you because he has won something and he has declared that the promised land is yours. I give it to you. But when they go in to take the promised land, they have to go in and fight for it. And so, you know, the Bible depicts in this language, 1 Timothy 6 says this, but as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. These things were depictions that Paul gave to Timothy about idols, pursuits of money and the love of money. Flee these things, man of God. 
Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Then he says this, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. It's a good fight, but one that we're having to be told to fight. And so, you know, whatever just got accomplished by the saints fighting their way to finish strong, and they did, and won in the end. Whatever Olympic athletes have done to train and train and train and train and train, they have done so for temporary benefits that in light of eternity will fade into the shadows. But what we fight for are eternal things. We fight for the kingdom of God in our own soul. We fight for the advancement of the kingdom of God here upon this earth so that as God rules and reigns here in me, he can spill over into other people's lives with the gospel. We fight for things that are eternal, but we do fight. This is a fight. If somehow you got a hold of a brochure on Christianity that didn't feature fighting, you got, in, you, you got the front pages ripped out. You got the heaven version. You got the version of Christianity that comes when you die and you go stand before God and you are in heaven now. There's no fighting involved. No one fights for land in heaven because there's no enemies and there's no fallenness and there's no sin. So it's a brief career we have in fighting, but we do fight now. And so if, if fighting is wearing us out, it's not as though there's an alternative. I would love to be able to stand up in here, guys, if we'll just fight one more week, we're done. That wouldn't be true. We're going to fight until our very last breath. And we're going to need help and encouragement and coaching we're going to need training and support all along the way because it would be very tempting to be discouraged. J.C. Ryle says, the first thing I have to say is this. True Christianity is a fight. The warfare I speak of is the spiritual warfare. It is the fight which everyone who would be saved must fight about his soul. This warfare, I am aware, is a thing of which many know nothing and yet, it is as real and true as any war the world has ever seen. The true Christian is called to be a soldier and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He must fight. Now, quite honestly, this series couldn't pick a more difficult opponent. Because, you know, we're not just talking about a passage that happens to just sort of skirt in on the edges of where you struggle in your life. You know, sometimes that's where a passage goes. It kind of it comes into my life and it kind of scoots out and scoops out the edges of where my struggles are. That's not a big issue for me. Somebody else might be in the heart of where they struggle. But for me, sometimes it's just on the outskirts of struggles that I have every once in a while. Hey, that'd be cool if I could catch something from this message. That might help me every once in a while. Personal idols are asking you to provide the topic and to go straight to the place where the worst battles happen in your life and stand on that ground. Well, that's probably the most beneficial area to fight as a Christian, but it's also the most discouraging as well. So we're in part five here. I'm aware we are both 
wrestling with realities and at the same time wanting to stop. And yet we're not ready to stop. And, and not fighting has to get out of our vocabulary. It's not the way of life of a Christian. There's no such thing as not fighting. And the Bible actually calls it a good fight of faith. It's a good fight. Matter of fact, the more you fight, the more your faith is strengthened by fighting. And the more you have in you the hope that you're going to make it to the end. Because you do fight. It's when you stop fighting that your faith begins to be affected and weakened. That you begin to lose sight of the end. And you begin to believe there is no end in sight. And you cannot make it. And you're going to be defeated. Because you've not fought. Christianity, guys, Christianity is a fight. So whether it's shepherding at this moment or whether it's coaching, uh, guys, let's, let's finish strong. Let's make headway. We've made some headway in walking through this series. Uh, let's deal some death blows to our opponents in this area. We've learned more about our enemy than we knew before, and we have better insight on how to overcome, but we still need to fight. We need to fight for freedom. Look, look at this thought from Kent Hughes. He says, in today's world, truly free people are exceptions. Most are like marionettes, suspended and animated by a thousand strings of purported pleasure. Some bounce puppet-like on the terrible strings of alcohol and drugs. Others' animus comes from pleasure-giving technology, cars, hot tubs, water beds, or stereos. You can tell this is an old commentary, can't you? <laughs> uh, please put in place of that uh, iPods and uh, whatever, flat screens. Still others... Listen to this carefully. Still others lay lifeless until they are brought to life by sports and entertainment. Now, how timely is that? Right, how many folks were living just this dull, non-animated life until the Saints started making their run to the Super Bowl? And then all of a sudden, you bumped into that dude on Monday morning, and he had read the sports page, ESPN. He knew every stat. He had player evaluations. He, I mean, this guy was up on stuff. He was excited. But what was he before then? Millions of people rise and shower, drive their cars, walk the streets, ride elevators, return home, and go out in apparent freedom while actually... Never making a move not due to the tug of a self-centered pleasure. Even Christians are not immune to such bondage. How does God regard his children who live for their self-centered pleasures, and what does he do to help them? These are the questions which are current text answers, which we're going to look again at James chapter 4 in just a moment. Now remember... The reality of idolatry is that you and I are experiencing diminished freedom <clears throat> as a result. No matter how much pleasure an idol tries to sell you on, that it's going it's to reap benefit to you in your life, it shortens its leech every time you agree with it. You get on a shorter and shorter and shorter chain, shorter and shorter, to where eventually you got no freedom except to serve that thing in your life. And you wait and give yourself and strategize and think and devote yourself to that thing because it's become to you the reason for your life. 
Well, as I said last week, though, that's not the worst thing about idolatry. That might be the worst thing that we can think of. But the worst thing about idolatry is what it says about God. The worst thing about idolatry is the the de-glorifying of God. Because when you read the Bible, you find out that there's there's a purpose in God. That we exist and all things were created because God had this thought to bring his glory into revelation. And so God created, and he created a certain way with certain things, and we discover creation, and we go, wow, the universe is how big? Well, it's unbelievably big, and we can't find the edges of it. Wow. Why does God do stuff like that to make us go, wow, to make us look from that to him in a certain way? So all things exist, the Bible says, for his glory. What does it mean to to glory in God, to glorify God. Well, to glorify in the Bible means to to make a big deal out of, to make a big show of, to put on display, to find the worth in, to stare into the details and be amazed. That's what it means to be glorifying God. So what happens when we have that opportunity in knowing God personally And yet, there is a lack of adventure, pursuit, and joy in that process. What does that say about the details of God? That we know God, we're believers, but yet there would be some believers who were severely lacking some sense of animation in their life until the saints got into the Super Bowl run. I mean, listen, I understand that there's, there's truly lost people in the city who this temporary event provided for them something to pay attention to, something to celebrate, something to have joy over. Things weren't going great in their life in a number of categories, but the saints are in the Super Bowl, Jace. They could, can you believe this? I mean, they're bankrupt, their marriage is falling apart, and they've got a disease, but they're excited because the saints... Oh, finally, something to lift my eyes from here to that. But, but, but that's Christianity every day. Every day. You could be losing your job, going bankrupt, having marriage issues, health issues in your body, and yet there's something more exciting taking place. If I could just lift my gaze to the glorious God and who he is, it, it should produce in me a sense that the Super Bowl produced. All right, let me just be really careful here because comments like this turn like that into legalism and they turn into ill-informed Bible. People wield this like a bad sword. Let me tell you what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that if you're a Christian here, none of you should have been excited about the saints winning the Super Bowl. Okay? Because that's what some people hear. It's like, yeah, preach it, brother. I, mean, I know some people, it's like, it's the Super Bowl, okay? It's, it's sinful just by nature. Um, no. No, you, you realize God has wired us with an ability to enjoy things. You know, this, this is what I constantly refer to as my taste bud theology. You do realize that there's, there's, there's no physiological necessity for taste buds you need to eat you don't need to taste what you're eating 
right? Your car doesn't taste the gas. It just burns it and uses it as fuel. So if God just needed to stick a port in the side of our neck and we just kind of stuck some stuff in and fueled up and went on, he could have done that. But you know how interesting that God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you taste buds. And when this crosses those taste buds, you're going to enjoy it. And there's a lot physiologically about us that God simply created. It's Valentine's Day. You guys can go where I'm going here. Uh, That is pleasurable. And God intended it to be pleasurable. So the idea that, you know, it's really serious about God means you don't enjoy anything. Wrong. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. If anything, these pleasures lift our eyes about a foot off of earth to prepare us to be a mile off of earth. It's just a little bit of a taste of what pleasure is supposed to be like. So, so here's, my, here's my issue. You're watching the game last week, and, and Tracy Porter steps in front of... <laughs> You're doing it already. You're doing it already. Tracy Porter steps in front of the Peyton Manning Pass, and I'm sure you look like a Sunday morning church attender in that moment. <laughs> right? You sat kind of like this and watched it and, and maybe just kind of went... Looked at your watch to see if it was the game was over. Is it time to go yet? There's no adrenaline going on in you. No excitement, right? No. Not a one, right? People who couldn't walk in that moment were up out of their wheelchairs. <laughs> uh. All right, so, so where does that fit into the scheme of God? Right? Well, that moment would be like a stepladder. Step on that moment and now prepare yourself to respond to the day that the Son of God stepped in and intercepted the wrath of God on your behalf. Because quite honestly, as much as I was excited, I was out of my chair, I don't get a Super Bowl ring, ain't no money coming to me. Tracy Porter, thank you, but I personally am going to receive no benefit from what you did. Zero. But man, was I excited about that in that moment. (laughs) Uh. But when when we read the word of God, when we worship God and we we create songs that basically give us a replay. Have y'all, have y'all gotten tired of seeing the Tracy Porter replay yet? I mean, you're walking by the TV, right? And the sports thing is showing it. You stop and you look again, right? I mean, how many times you watch this thing and you stop and you're like, okay, he, he scored again. Uh, it's like, didn't fumble. I just want to make sure. When, when we sing about the person and the work of Christ... The moment with Tracy Porter should be a starting place for you. That should be the very worst moment of your excitement about what happened when Christ took upon himself my sins and the God of glory poured out his wrath on his son to remove it forever as an obstacle between me and him. And to prepare for me a place for all eternity where I would celebrate constantly in his presence. 
This is why it makes no sense that churches don't sound louder than the Superdome. Now, listen to me. Am I saying that the Superdome shouldn't be loud and we shouldn't celebrate anything? That would be just like me saying, hey, listen, when you eat something that tastes good, don't, don't you enjoy it? If you were a real Christian, it passed your taste buds and you wouldn't even know it had flavor. That's stupid, okay? Don't go there. So enjoy the things that God has given us to enjoy. It just educates you about what real enjoyment looks like when you go to enjoy something that really matters, and it's God. Why does God be able to say, taste and see that the Lord is good? Now that taste word's a hard one for me, God, because I don't know what it's like to enjoy anything. No, taste God. Taste him. Experience God in such a way that, that he becomes enamoring to you and a joy and a passion for you to pursue. This, this is where idolatry moves into categories that aren't just, you know, okay, all the drug addicts, all the porn people. You know, let's deal with some idols this morning. Um, now, this, this is where idolatry moves into the category of the Christian who lacks joy. Has tasted of a God and has walked away saying, I am not satisfied. I don't find in you, O oh God, something that holds me and affects me deeply. I want something else. See, now that's more tragic than the fact that you and I walk around in bondage. I can identify the bondage. I know what it's like to be in tears, to be disappointed, to be frustrated. I know those things, and I'd love for God to set me free, and God wants to set me free. But the great tragedy is that the people of God look upon God and then look away from him to find something else, to find another God who can go deep into our hearts and give us something to be excited about, whatever that might be. If that's what the Super Bowl became to you, then it went beyond just being something to enjoy. It did become an idol for you. It became some stopgap measure to make you happy because you're really not happy. You're really unhappy with God. That's the tragedy of the Christian life. Now, in James chapter 4, go back to James chapter 4, This verse so lives in our lives that I think there's just so much insight to be gained from it. James chapter 4 starts with the stuff on the outside of our lives, the skirmishes of life, the way we're bumping into each other, the conflicts, and it moves us into the heart of idolatry. Right? Look at this quote from Alec Motier, your outline. It says, the whole movement of James' thoughts is to reveal that public problems have private causes. Public problems, which he points out in the first two verses that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, the quarrels and the conflicts that are present amongst us, the murderous desires, they come from the heart. He says, as we seek now with James to move forward from this point, we find that his first thought is to put the entire problem into a different context. His concern is not that we have played false with each other, but that we have played false with God, right? You move from quarrels and conflicts into verse four. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you see the change here? It's gone from you're not getting along with each other. You're harming each other in relationships, whatever they are, friendships, co-workers, marriages. You're harming one another. And the counsel, though, is about adulterous activity toward God. This is where your issues are coming from. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The issue of conflict with one another is an issue of me being at odds with God. It's about my walk with God. Our problem is, in fact, he says, a spiritual one. How to get right with God and how to stay right with him. Now, have you thought about that? Have you brought this idea, this biblical principle here, into your various relational conflicts? Right? I mean, you're having conflicts wherever they are. Right? And they're in households. They're as, as teenagers come of age and begin to have desires in life. And there's a conflict between parental influence and teenage desires. And all of a sudden, uh, there begins to be this broken relationship dynamic happening. There's anger. There's, you know, cutting eyes. Slanderous comments. Where, where is all that stuff coming from on the outside? What's coming from a, a heart desire that I want something. And I want it bad. And maybe you want some friends and your parents are saying, no, I don't think that's a good thing for you. Or maybe you're wanting to date and do it in a way your parents are saying, no, no I don't think that's the way we're going to go about doing that. You know, why aren't you just okay with that? Because you want something. You don't just want something. You want something that you think you desperately need and have to have it that way. And I'm afraid you're going to take it from me. And so now I'm going to fight for this thing. And I'm going to be angry and I'm going to seek to control you and change you and manipulate you. Right? And this is happening in relationships. Right? This is happening in marriages. The way in which we relate to one another as we deal through each other's issues and we bump in and we're doing life together and quarreling breaks out. And the same thing happens. Angry outbursts, unkind words, judgments and criticisms Where's all that coming from? Is it just external issues? Let's just solve this issue. Okay, let's come together and put the issue on the table. Let's just, let's just get this issue solved. Okay, but the issue is being fought over a certain way. It's not being handled like we're all just neutral. Yeah, that is an issue. Honey, let's just talk about that issue. We're all just good and neutral right here. You know, we're, I'm feeling good, you're feeling good. And, but you know, there's an issue here. That, that's not how your fights happen, is it? That ain't how it happens in my house. There's heat. Well, where's the heat come from? Because I want something. And it looks like I'm not going to get it. And it matters to me a lot. Okay, well, well, in that moment, do you want the glory of God? Or do you want something else? That's where James goes. You're having quarrels and conflicts? They're coming from a desire to buy into something that the world has offered. And you are saying yes to that. That's why you become adulterous in the eyes of God. 
We get to be friends with the world rather than whatever will glorify God in this moment is what I'm after. See, the heart of conflict is, is in the heart of idolatry. All right, so two things are going to happen today. I want to look at God's response to idolatry and our response to idolatry. God's response first, because without his response, uh, we cannot have a response. Look in James chapter 4, verse 6. Just got finished saying how God jealously yearns over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, let, me, let me just stay in that verse for a moment here. What, what is God's response to encountering our idolatry? Because what God has just said is he is on the scene of a quarrel and a fight that finds its root in hearts that have drifted from God and want something that the world has offered them for benefit, and therefore God has been displaced. And God is on the scene of that right now. What is God's response? To give more grace. And that might not have been what we would have thought he would have done. Against this backdrop that James has so clearly portrayed, he says God's response is to give more grace. So this is the posture of God towards the people of God. He is the giver of grace. He is the initiator. He is the one who comes with grace, whether or not the situation deserves grace. This is not a situation deserving grace, is it? This, these are adulterous people in this text. This is strong language God's using. This is God revealing that his great desire towards us is a jealous yearning for his spirit to dwell within us. That's almost humiliating in a way. For God to say he, he passionately longs for his spirit to dwell in us. It's like he's having to make that point to his people because he has a people who have gone astray in their hearts from him. And what does he do in response? He gives more grace. And that word more can actually be translated either as more or as greater. He gives greater grace. Greater than what? Grace greater than the idolatrous heart that caused you to want that more than you wanted God. Did you hear that? Because if we're going anywhere, we got to get that point. God gives a grace that is greater than the idolatrous heart in me that operated so that I wanted that more than I wanted God. God gives the grace to restore my heart to him. He's the one who brings it to me. Now, if I, if I read the Bible, I find out this isn't anything new in Scripture. James 4, verse 6 is not covering any new ground here. Right, we've done a little work looking at Old Testament patriarchs. We've looked at, at Abraham. Do you remember the Bible is so clearly associating Abraham with the idolatry of his fathers in the land of Ur? Abraham was an idol worshiper. That's what's in his background. He's an idol worshiper. Listen, when God shows up in his life, 
He is participating in idolatry in his heart when God steps in and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, now listen, what was the basis for God doing that with Abraham? Was it because Abraham found some sense of significance by his accomplishments before God? Was it because he had cleaned his act up and turned from idolatry significantly enough for God then to give grace? That's not what we find. Abraham is an active idol worshiper whose life gets interrupted by a God who gives greater grace. And Abraham becomes who he's going to become because God gives a greater grace. Why does Abraham ever flee from idolatry? Why does Abraham ever move away from idolatry? Because God gives a greater grace. We don't go too far from Abraham before we get to Jacob. Guys, remember discussing Jacob at the men's retreat. Jacob, what a guy. Ian DeGood says, Jacob, the man stumbling from one family conflict to another. Right? He is James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, over and over and over again. He demonstrates quite a different virtue. He shows us the triumph of grace over all obstacles. Jacob, with all of his sinning, scheming, and plotting, is the perfect model of how God's undeserved favor can succeed even with the most unpromising material. Jacob's not a poster child for all that God did in his life. Jacob's a reason why we would suspect God will never do that in his life. Unless we realize that God is the initiator of grace and God gives a greater grace, not to those who deserve it, but out of a heart to give his grace, he gives his grace. Now, not only is this true for those dudes long ago in Scripture, but it's true of us too. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and this, this verse, this passage may not be something that you have considered as a description for your own life. When we come to God, most of us come with an idea that, that, okay, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad either. That's, that's how most of us feel. Right? We're decent, civilized, we're not cannibals, we don't do things that, you know, that make the headlines at night on the news. So we pretty much feel like we're decent people. And yeah, I need God as well. But you know, the Bible does not say that about us. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Would you have described your life that way, apart from this verse? Would you have said, uh, one, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Spiritually, I was dead. I was apart from God. I, you know, I didn't always know God. I didn't grow up in a family that always knew God, and therefore I always knew God. You know, God's always been in my life. Okay, anytime you say that, you are way outside the Bible. Now, I realize that's a radical thought for many of us. But see, the Bible doesn't describe us as always knowing God, and I just got serious about God later on. No, 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 no. The Bible says we were dead in our sins. And not just dead, we were actively dead. Right? Because you'd think, well, dead people, what do dead people do? Well, dead people spiritually, they follow, they walk 
They follow the course of this world, actively pursuing it. They follow the prince of the power of the air. And look what they say in the next, in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So we were dead to God, but we were very alive to our own passions, our own way of life. Carrying out the, the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The rest of mankind, everybody is in this verse. Everybody's described here. So in this passage, we find passions and desires. Those are idle words. That's what the heart goes after because it believes in it, life can be found. So there were passions in us. We wanted things. Now listen, maybe you wanted to be the next president of the country club. You know, maybe you didn't want to be the local drug dealer, but you wanted to be the next president of the country club, so much so that you were having the battle with jealousy and gossip over somebody else who's running for that position in the country club. We understand this is idolatrous. Oh, but Keith, it's not that bad. Well, it's not that bad to you and me because we're you and me. But to God, it's following the course of this world. It's idolatry. It's my life's good and benefits and purpose is, in, is tied up in getting that position. That's not a bad position. What became bad as soon as it became an idol to you. Was it wrong for you to be president of the country club? No, not at all. Until your life's fulfillment got bound up in that and God got shoved to the side and no longer God or you what my life is about. That is what my life is about now. Well, in that moment, that became an idol. Even if it was helping an old lady across the street, it became an idol. So something good can become very bad if God gets dislocated by it. So here's what we have. Now, look where this verse goes now. We're all in this condition, all the rest of mankind, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why was God merciful to us? This is a circular thinking here. It's God never going outside of himself to do what he's about to do. God being merciful to us. Why was he merciful to us? Well, because he loved us. Not because I deserved it, not because Abraham deserved it, not because Jacob deserved it. His mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, why did God step into Abraham's life, to Jacob's life, to my life? Not because I deserved it. I was an idolater right along with the rest. But because God's love in himself brought forth a mercy into my life and then his steadfast desire that not only now, Keith, but for ages to come, I'm going to put on display unbelievable mercy for all to see in your life. I'm going to relate to you in grace. Not because you've deserved it. You didn't deserve it from the start and you don't deserve it now. See, James is dealing with believers that God says, but God gives more grace, greater grace. Now, this, is, this is critically, critically important. 
right? Ken Hughes says, this verse means there will always be enough grace, regardless of our situation or need. Always. For daily need, there is daily grace, right? Daily, boring, mundane, everyday life gets daily grace from God. For sudden need, sudden grace. Right, remember, sudden is only a word you and I can use. You understand nothing happens suddenly with God? <laughs> you and all of a sudden, a circumstance comes, and suddenly, we think, you know, like the, there's been a shudder in the force in the kingdom. You know, there's no such thing as suddenly for God. Do you understand that, right? It's only for us that it's sudden. For overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. There's no such thing as an overwhelming need for God either. You know, these are words that we play with. But grace from God is always, always sufficient. Now, now here's the question, though. How do you know? How does one tell whether grace is sufficient? How do you know that? Because if there's anything that's critical about what we're going to talk about here today, is, is if you don't know that, then whatever step you're supposed to take next in the Christian life, then you can't take it. See, I like John Piper's phrase when he says, we live by faith in future grace. I take this step, not because I think in me I have all the ability to do it, but because I believe in that location the grace of God will meet me. And then I take that step, not because in me I believe I have strength and wisdom and ability, but because I believe by God that's where I'm supposed to be, and then his grace will meet me. That's walking by faith in future grace. What if I start believing that there won't be any grace right there? Then you just won't take that step. Because I know in me, especially if you're dealing with idol issues, I know in me, I can look back and see. Look at the history of how idolatry has been in my life. It will be that way again. So why take another step? Well, that's not faith in the grace of God. That's faith in me, in my fallenness, in my sin. I have to be convinced that God's grace will be sufficient for me. How do I know it's going to be sufficient for me? What's it going to feel like when it's sufficient for me? Right? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Is it, is it, is it that grace feels sufficient when I f I'm not suffering? Right? In the moment where I'm no longer suffering, in that moment, grace is sufficient. While I was suffering, grace was not sufficient. Is grace sufficient when I feel adequate? I have confidence. I've done this before. I can do this. I can handle this then grace is sufficient. But if I, if I feel inadequate or if I feel weak, is grace insufficient in that moment? Well, you know, we learn from the Apostle Paul something about when grace is sufficient in this passage. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul says, so to keep me from being conceited, right? God has a purpose in what he does in our lives. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should lead me. Okay, stop right there. I know you guys know where the story goes, but, but think with Paul for a second. Paul is pleading for something to go away. Does Paul feel like he's in the will of God right now? 
I mean, he's got to be feeling like, okay, somewhere somebody dropped a ball. I went askew. There's a problem here somewhere. God, this needs to stop. How does it stop? He's obviously not excited about this weakness that's being experienced in his life. And he must feel like, God, for me to go further in the kingdom, to serve your purpose, to be who you call me to be, this has got to go away, God. And it's not going away. I've prayed three times and it's still in my life. So, God, I feel paralyzed. I mean, how do I move on in this condition of my weakness? Weakness needs to go away. Now, how many of us feel that way? right? We feel weak, inadequate. I mean, our prayers are all over that about God. Make that go away. God, I'm outnumbered. The need in my life is bigger than me. God, make that go away. Make the balance come back. Push the scale back up to where I feel like I got enough in me to handle that. Because right now I don't have enough in me to handle that, God. And I pray and I pray and I pray about that and I pray about that. Now listen, since the Christian life has never, never been about creating circumstances that you and I can sufficiently handle. That's not the Christian life. The kingdom of God involves you and I living in circumstances that are beyond us and therefore necessitate the grace of God. Now, even knowing that, because Paul, you know, he's a dude who wrote Ephesians chapter 2, so he must know that God's in this. He has lost sight of it because weakness makes us feel like Everything about my walk and my life is inadequate. I don't have what it's going to take for me to get through this, God. I'm asking and asking and asking. In verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's perspective is not God's perspective. In this moment, God says, you have grace, and it is sufficient for you. Now, now notice something here. Paul doesn't create grace. Grace is already on the scene. Grace is at work in his life, but Paul doesn't recognize it. Anybody with Paul on that one? Okay, but what matters in this verse where God says, but God gives more grace is that you and I come to a place of faith to believe God does give us grace. And it's sufficient grace. He didn't give us, you know, like half a cup. We needed a whole cup. He gives us sufficient grace. And I can have sufficient grace even when I feel like I'm weak and I don't have sufficient grace. That's what this verse says. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. This is a moment of revelation. Grace is in my weakness, in the form of power and God at work, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I have a change of mind here. I'm going to stop praying about this this way. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, how many of us would say grace is sufficient when the headlines of my life is insult? Hardship. This is hard. I don't know where you go with the word hardship, but hardship means hardship. It doesn't mean, oh, 1920s uh, economic crash, living on the street hardship. Well, it did for that guy in 1920s. But for you, 
It means wherever your life is located, hardship. So sufficient grace is in the moment of hardship with you. Calamity, sudden, unexpected, downturn, collapse of something that you and I deem as critically important to us. Our whole city, the economy, a job, our health, calamity. Paul says the sufficiency of God's grace is in that. I just got a revelation. God's grace is always sufficient. Always, always sufficient for me to take the next step. God, whatever the step is, you will meet me in this. I feel weak. I feel inadequate. The circumstances outnumber me. But God, you are with me in this and your grace will meet me. How do I make that decision? Because I feel like grace is sufficient for me? No. Because God has said his grace is sufficient for me. I make a decision in faith to believe what God has said versus believing my own feelings. All right, let me move quickly to this next point. Verse 6, I want to come back to verse 6. Go back to James with me. And I want to spend some time because I think there's significant issues in dealing with idolatry that have to do with understanding humility. So I'm not going to go off into that today because I couldn't do justice to it. But verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Douglas Moo says, but in keeping with this strong emphasis on exhortation throughout the letter, James does not let this word of grace stand by itself for long. God's grace demands response, the response of humility. We'll look at that next week. But look, look at what... Mr. Motier says here, he says, but grace in God has a correlative in man. James, having pointed to God's sufficiency, points to our responsibility. So God's response to our idolatry is grace, more grace, greater grace. But then we have a response to God's grace. In verse 7 through 10, there are no less than 10 commands to obey. James does not see the indwelling spirit, in verse 5, as a means of instant and effortless sanctification. God jealously yearns for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That spirit is dwelling in us. And these people in James chapter 4 have an idol problem on their hand that's broken out into broken, conflicting relationships. What happened? Well, we had the spirit of God dwelling in us. And yet, this idolatry is still occurring. So apparently, the spirit dwelling in us is not a means of instant and effortless sanctification. Those are great words for us, aren't they? Because I, I don't know how you are, but that's where I so desire for everything in my life to live. Instant and effortless. If there's an idol in my life, it would be the idol of instant and effortless. I just want everything to be able to be fixed at a button's touch. You know, I just want the reset button to be available. Reset that. Okay, everything's good. Everybody's good. All attitudes are good. Money is good. And, and I don't want to have to wrestle with it. I don't want to have to deal with anything. I don't want to have to have this be a dragged out, prolonged issue in my life. Rather, he goes on to say, the Holy One may dwell with even while, may dwell within even while we pursue the pathway of sinful self-seeking. In the same way, he does not see the inexhaustible supply of grace as sweeping us along to an effortless holiness. He knows of no such easy victory. 
The benefits of grace and more grace are ours along the road of obedience and more obedience. And you know what? That's exactly where this verse now goes. Now, now please notice which came first. It's critical that you notice which came first. Abraham, Jacob, Keith. What came first? My wonderful devotion to God, my lack of idolatry, my seriousness about repentance, my doing all that's in the next few verses. What came first? No. What came first was God gives a greater grace. But that is not the end of the story. The grace God gives now calls upon me for a response to it. God has responded to my idolatry. Now God calls me to respond to his grace. Look in verse 7. Here's my response. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Submit yourselves to God. Idolatry is in our midst. It's in our hearts. God is giving a greater grace. What do I do? I submit myself to God. What does that mean? Douglas Moose says, to submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship and therefore to commit ourselves to obey him in all things. All things. This is, this is not where we make a deal with God. This is not where we negotiate an aspect of our life while we retain the rights to other aspects of our lives. This is, this is, that dynamic is what makes Christianity so dysfunctional and sometimes so hard to diagnose. Because we, we make deals with God. We give God access to some dimension of our life while we retain the rights over another because our idol wants to protect this one. And so therefore, we, we don't want to tell God, God, I'll do whatever. I trust you. I trust you more than I trust me. I will do whatever you call me to do in my life. And the moment I step out to do that, I'm going to meet another issue. I'm going to meet an adequacy issue. Can I do it? Well, can I do it? That's a good question. Can I? Well, God gives a greater grace. Can can I obey God if I've disobeyed him a hundred times in a row in the last eight years in an area of my life? Can I, right now, obey him? Well, it doesn't feel like I can, can I? It feels like I'm in orbit around this issue in my life. And and I've tried to break free, and I haven't. And over and over again, there's a testimony there. But God says, but I give you a greater grace. Therefore, submit to me. Obey me in everything. In the most riskiest ways in your life, obey me. Follow me. You've been following the course of this world. Follow me. This is why there's that adulterous component. Because in a moment, I'm going to either obey God and follow him, or I'm going to follow something else. And in that moment, I'm going to choose whether adultery is going to be committed in my faith. Because it's not just a matter of, I can't stop. Okay, please, please don't use that language. I can't, I can't stop doing this. That is not the truth, and you're lying to yourself. The truth is, I don't want to stop doing this. And I want it so strongly that I feel like I can't. That's a better description of an addict. It's not that you can't. It's that I don't want to. See, God would be totally wrong and out of bounds to call us adulteresses if we were committing adultery because we we couldn't. Be faithful to him. But he calls us adulteresses because we have made a choice 
to not put our faith in him, I think I've got to have that. I can't stop because that thing to me matters so much to me. And I feel like I can't stop pursuing it. You can stop pursuing it. I just don't want to. And so the first thing that has to happen is, okay, don't want to, but will you obey God? Will you go after him and follow him and trust him no matter what? But what if this happens? Okay, well, what if it happens? That becomes the idol of fear. I don't want my life to feel that way. That would be hard. Well, hard? Like hardship's hard? Yeah, hard. I don't like hard. I don't like that setting. I like the easy setting. When my life gets on the hard setting, I don't like it. But what if hardships is a place where you learn about the grace of God more than anything else? What if crying uncle three times and praying to God like the Apostle Paul, who had much more insight than any of us have into who God is, causes us to say, oh, I didn't realize this is a place for boasting in my weaknesses. This is a place to celebrate because the grace of God is real to me in this moment now that I see this. See, we're not to avoid the hard setting. If hard comes about as a result of obedience, well, then life gets to be hard. God says, submit to me, and he says, draw near to me. And this, this is a critical, critical issue. Drawing near to God. Idols don't like to be near to God. Idols that have us on a leash, they don't like to let us go in that direction. They affect us in the most critical of ways. Because the motivation to walk with God comes from being with God. I will follow God if I can see God accurately. And so if my idols keep me from seeing God, well, then they have won a huge battle because now I don't have any motivation to obey God. I don't really want to obey God because I don't see God as something that's going to produce benefit in my life the way this idol maybe does. Like Motir again says, the first element in the, in the conflict is this central battle to live near God. The battle for regularity and discipline in Bible reading, prayer, private and public worship, feasting at the Lord's table, devoting ourselves to Christian fellowship, cultivating every appointed avenue where we can draw near to him. Fellowship with God and its consequent blessing of his fellowship with us does not just happen. We cannot drift into it any more than we can drift into holiness. It's our first obedience. Let everything else in our lives, and listen, I am struggling. I'm going to tell you something right now. This is a statement that I hope to live. Okay? Let everything else in our lives fall apart before we let our relating to God fall apart. All the squeaky wheels, all the demands, everything that's got to get done today, every vital, critical thing that we think we've got to make time for and room for, and then we just live our lives year after year apologizing for how decrepit our time with God has become. Listen, this is where idols saw the legs off of us because the idol convinces me that it has something that I want, and I'm never around God to get convinced that, no, he has what I want. And that lack of seeing God provides zero motivation for me to move away from that. And therefore, I don't want to leave my idols because I've not found in God 
that which I've been seeking in it. See, if we're going to lose something, hey, live in squalor before you live too far from God. Get fired from job after job before you live too far from God. And one more command is given here. Submit ourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. So this, this is, idolatry brings us to this point of God has identified it. He said it's not just the surface sins in your life, it's in the heart. It's functioning and affecting your motivation. It's the reason why you're doing this and your problem ultimately therefore is not with each other, it's with me. You want something besides me in your life. And here's the remedy. Receive my grace, submit to me, and resist the devil. Right? This is the Christian two-step. Submit to God, resist the devil. You can't do one without the other. Submit to God, resist the devil. The devil is on the field with us. This is not just you. It's not just my appetite for sin. It is my supercharged appetite for sin that the enemy is only too willing to plug some electricity into and make it bigger than it already is. So he is in this with me. But here's good news, Douglas Moo says. When we resist the devil's purposes, he will, James promises, flee from you. Whatever power Satan may have, the Christian can be absolutely certain that he has been given the ability to overcome that power. So now here's the the good news I want us to be able to walk away from today. Because God gives a greater grace, these commands are doable. I can submit myself to God and I can resist the devil because God gives a greater grace. Not because of me, but because God gives a greater grace. I can do these things. I can submit myself to God and I can resist the devil and he will pack up and flee. That Bible verse doesn't say, well, pack up and flee the first time I tell him, first time I resist. It doesn't say that. It just says he will flee. And this is where we go back to fighting. This is not an instantaneous thing. Guys, we are called to fight. So we fight today, and we're going to still be fighting tomorrow. We're going to be fighting next week. Any of us in here who have bought in the idea that I just want to fight for the next six weeks, and then I want to be done fighting. Because you can tell me that, I'm, I'll sign up. I can't tell you that. You're going to be fighting until your breath is exhausted from you, and you stand before God in heaven. And it's a good fight. It's a good fight. Now listen, make this real in your own heart. Idols of insecurity and people-pleasing, they're overcomable. If you've been that way since you were a child, they're overcomable. This is doable. Idols of laziness. That lack of motivation, that sluggishness. We just don't feel to get motivated to do certain things in our life. And we just seem to continue to come back to that over and over and over again. It's overcomable. I am able in that category to submit myself to God and to resist the devil and to see change happen in my life. Lust, addictions, it's doable. And to not believe that, the only reason I I don't believe that is because I don't believe in the sufficiency of the grace 
of God. Because God says, this is doable because I give a greater grace. All right, let me, let me close with this thought. This is not in your notes. This was just a last-minute issue. Turn to Joshua chapter 17. Matt, you can get ready to come up here. Old Testament, Joshua chapter 17. Remember Joshua, what this book is about. This book is about moving into the promised land. This is about dwelling in the good that God has promised. Okay, so all across this room, there are promises that God has made to us. To live in a land, if you will. To have a new address in our lives, in how we live, because we're the people of God. So there's promises that come to us simply because God has chosen to bless us. And that's what he told the nation of Israel. But he told them, when you go in, you're going to have to fight to take the ground that I've given you. It is the ground God has given, but it was not an effortless inheritance. And there came a day in the tribe here of Joseph, look in verse 14. It says, Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people? since all along the Lord has blessed me. Right? They're, they're dividing up the land right now. So everybody's getting a chunk of space to enjoy. And Joshua said to them, if you are numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim. Since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. All right, now how many of us feel like sometimes Whatever ground we're living on as a Christian, it's not big enough right now. I'm not experiencing enough of God. I'm not experiencing enough of this blessing that God spoke of. The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron. Both those in Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. How could Joshua make this statement of them? Because God promised them the land. And his grace to take the land would be sufficient. And they would have the power to overcome. But they had chariots of iron. These guys had weaponry that they hadn't encountered anywhere else. And they were intimidated and they stepped back. From moving forward, they stepped back. Because that seemed insurmountable. We can't overcome that. And if God's grace is sufficient and he is the giver of grace and he calls on us to take the land, then why aren't we in the land taking it then? I always invite the Reverend Charles Spurgeon to do my dirty work because he he says things uglier than I would. He says they could not conquer the chariots of iron because first 
they did not try. The Hebrew word does not say that they could not drive them out. What the Hebrew says is that they did not drive them out. Some things we cannot do because we never make the attempt. I suspect that they did not drive them out because they were idle, not I-D-O-L. If cavalry were to be dealt with, Judah must bestir himself. If chariots of iron were to be defeated, they must enter upon an arduous campaign. And so taking counsel of their fears and their idleness, they said, let us not venture on the conflict. There are many things that Christ's church is unable to do because it is too lazy. Listen, I wish I could take the edge off of that, but I've lived long enough as a Christian to know that what sits in the middle of my failures is my laziness. I get five parts into a series into issues that have controlled our lives. And we're ready to say, Uncle. And this is a part-time gig, right? I mean, we're only having to listen to this for the most part on Sunday mornings or if you read the book. It's hard to go here, isn't it? Yeah. And we don't like to do hard things, do we? No. We're Americans. We like instant and effortless. There's nothing about dealing with idols that is instant or effortless. If, that, if those words remain on the field for us, then we will feel like we're constantly outside the will of God. Fighting is the word to use. This is a fight. Finish strong. Do not quit. Do not take the headway that you've made and pull back. Because God gives a greater grace. God's grace is greater. Whatever idolatrous issues have come up in our lives as we've begun to look at this, God gives a greater grace and it is sufficient. Be prepared to pick your foot up from where it is right now and take the next step even though you don't feel sufficient to do it because you believe in future grace. If if the cross, it says so many things to us, but if it says anything to us, It says, the God who did not spare his own son, will he not with him freely give us all things? Romans chapter 8. If God sent his son and didn't spare his son, whatever I need in this next step to be victorious, is God going to get chintzy on me all of a sudden? Is God all of a sudden finding that he has lack? Or, Or there's something that's so precious to him that he's unwilling to give it to me? He's given me his son. What a statement. That there's not a moment in my life that God is willing now to withhold anything from me. He has given me his most valued possession. Will he not with him freely give whatever I need right now? Is this doable, Christian? Yes. This is doable. I can do it. I can take the next step. I can fight another day. I can go deeper in God. I can fight to get my eyes on God and to glory in him. And to find and taste and see in God a goodness that causes that to no longer look good, but to look bad like it really is. Let's stand up together.
Lord, capture us this morning. For these issues in our lives are like deep thorns and messing with them has been deeply painful for many. For some, there even hasn't been a messing with them. But for many here this morning, digging out lifelong idols is very painful. And your word, Lord, to us today is keep going. Well, Lord, the grace to keep going and to submit ourselves to you and draw near to you and resist the devil comes from you. Lord, I'm not even sure we need to ask for that grace, but we, we do because you have postured us to be a people who are aware that you are our source and we come to you with requests. But the great thing is, Lord, you have already chosen a posture to lavish grace upon us. So, Lord, we don't have to ask you to be postured towards us. You already are. God, no matter how adulterous our lives feel like they have been, no matter how much an idol has captured us and drawn us away from you, God, no matter how much our lives have said, oh, God of the universe, you are inadequate. You stand to give us more grace and a greater grace. God, this morning, may there not be one here today who can leave this room without recognizing that truth. Lord, your grace is greater. Your grace is greater than my idol. Your grace is greater than my fear. Your grace is greater than my controlling idols in my heart. God, your grace is greater and your grace is sufficient. So Lord, whatever bold steps you would call me to take in submitting to you, God, I can take. Lord, I believe that by faith. God, whatever resisting of promises of the enemy, whatever benefit that seems to have allured me by my heart's passions, God, you have given me grace to say no to that, that I might say yes to the abundant life that you have for me, the reward that is rich in heaven, the joy of you in my life dwelling by the Spirit in me, the sufficiency of who you are, as the ultimate prize of my life. Oh God, give us the experiencing of that grace that we might taste and see you are good, Lord. As we sing, Lord, as we turn our attention to you in song, Lord, remind us, Lord, let us stand on top of Mr. Tracy Porter and realize what has been done for us in the interception of all time, where your son took from our lives the debt we could never overcome, the penalty that was rightly ours, for which we would pay for all eternity. It was intercepted by our great God on our behalf. Lord, if you would do that for us, is there anything you would withhold from our lives today that we need to live for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.